This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Over the past few months, much has been made about an increase in youth crime and antisocial behaviour, particularly in the Northern Territory and Queensland. But what are the alternatives to the criminal justice system? Professor Christopher Kinnean is one of Australia's leading criminologists with an international reputation specialising in juvenile justice, restorative justice, police, prisons and human rights. He's authored many books and has wide research interests that cross the fields of criminology, law and social science. He is currently the Professor of Criminology at Jumbana Research at the University of Technology, Sydney, and his new book is Defund the Police, an International Insurrection. Chris Kinnean, welcome back to to speaking out. Thanks. It's great to be here. Before getting into the details of your new book, I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about how you first became interested in criminology all those years ago. Mm, yeah, well, it is uh, 30, a bit more than 30 years ago. I was uh, doing some work up in Burke and, and also working in a youth refuge in Western Sydney. And policing was such a significant issue that it really sort of changed my academic focus, which had previously been on South Asian and Southeast Asian history, to criminology. So it was a big change. You've worked in the area for such a long time. I just wanted to talk to you about your observations about some of the changes. And I imagine that one of the biggest moments when you look back must be the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And I wonder now that you look back, what are your reflections on how significant it was at the time and what its impact has been since? Yeah, look, it's hard to describe its impact in a few words. I mean, it is 30 years plus now since the Royal Commission, but it really changed the political landscape in terms of how we understand the relationship between First Nations people in Australia and policing and the criminal legal system. And so it's hard to pinpoint any one change, but it's really set the parameters, if you like, for the discussions that have occurred and the ideas around reform ever since 1991 when the report was released. So sure, we can say, you know, many of the recommendations haven't been implemented or haven't been implemented properly, but I think its impact is much broader than that in terms of you know, how we understand the, really the oppressive nature of criminal legal systems in Australia in relation to First Nations people and to other people as well. Also, just before we get into your new book, as you mentioned, we've had this incredibly uh, significant Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody that's sort of set a benchmark. But since that time, we've seen the overrepresentation of First Nations people in the criminal justice system continue to increase. When you're asked about that trend, what is your explanation for why the statistics keep going in that direction? Look, I think there's a couple of answers to it. I mean, one is the punitive turn in relation to the criminal legal system generally, which was occurring in the late 1980s at the very time when the Royal Commission was being undertaken, but really accelerated during the 1990s and the 2000s. And so we saw a massive increase in relation to policing and the use of imprisonment. So I think that that's sort of one of the areas which occurred independently of the Royal Commission, if you like. And I think the other major area has been really the lack of any serious attention, particularly after the demise of ASIC, of any real engagement or negotiation with Aboriginal communities, both at a local level, but more generally in relation to the key demands around self-determination and sovereignty. So we've had 
those two things happening in parallel, and I think they go you know, a significant way to answering that question. You've, over time, become a powerful advocate for justice reinvestment. Can you explain what that concept is and how it takes a different approach uh, to issues around uh, law and justice? Yeah, look, I think justice reinvestment has developed and is developing in a particular way in Australia. And so certainly for any of your listeners who might be more familiar with what's happened in relation to justice reinvestment outside of Australia, particularly in the U.S., the path in Australia was very different, partly because at the very beginning, justice reinvestment was seen by key advocates, particularly Tom Karma when he was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, as a way of linking with community demands for greater control over the way the criminal legal system works. So justice reinvestment as an idea is simply that we remove money and resources from the criminal legal system and put it into community development. Now, I think that that kind of simple idea gelled with the idea that Aboriginal communities, First Nations communities in Australia, should have greater control over the way in which the criminal legal system works and really has a point, a point of leverage at which to argue for greater community-level determination over the issues that people see as important. And I think that's how it's developed in Australia, and I think that's why it's been so important for... Aboriginal communities across the country because it does provide that impetus for community control, which is really at the heart of self-determination on a local level. It is obviously a kind of practical application of the concept of self-determination. In the work you've seen here in Australia and overseas, have you seen evidence that the approach works? Oh, absolutely. Certainly in the example of Burke, which is often used because it's the longest running use of justice reinvestment as an idea for reorganising the way in which the criminal legal system works. We've seen particular reductions in the use of arrest. We've seen improvements in other areas, school retention rates, for example. So I think it provides a whole of community approach to dealing with the issues which we know cause interactions or conflicts with the justice system. And so yeah, I think it's been really important here. Burke is one example, but there are many other communities now in Australia, from Halls Creek to uh, to Port Adelaide, to Cape York, you know, that are developing justice reinvestment projects at a local level. Your new book is Defund the Police, an International Insurrection. I wonder if you could explain for us what the concept of defunding the police means. It's a concept that in some ways is not dissimilar to the ideas around justice reinvestment. That is that you remove resources from police and put them in to the community. And so it ties in with some of the broader abolitionist projects, the idea that what's referred to as the carceral state or the prison industrial complex itself needs to be challenged, it needs to be changed, and it ultimately needs to be abolished. So I think the most important thing about defund the police is it's not simply a negative catch cry. It's always been about presence, about not just absence, not just getting rid of police, but about reinvesting or investing in community-controlled approaches to deal with problems of social order or to deal with particular problems, economic problems and social problems that communities might have. And I guess you also make the argument in looking at this work that it's about taking resources from the police who are dealing with issues such as mental illness and placing them with professionals who might be better placed to be able to deal with some of those issues. I think that's right. In fact, disability activists have been 
among the leaders in the defund the police movement and calling for new approaches to working with people with mental illness or cognitive impairment or other disabilities. And I think that's a really, yeah, it's a really important example because we know, irrespective of whether we're looking at the US or we're looking at the UK or Australia, somewhere between three and five people that are killed by police are people that have disabilities. So it's been a really important driver to the whole movement. We also know that there are very strong intersections between disability and First Nations people, black and other minoritised groups uh, across those countries. You mentioned this was an idea that had been around for a while, but there was a particular international moment with George Floyd that galvanised discussions around the world. From your perspective, why did this spark such an international conversation? Look, I think the conversations were already there. So it was not a phenomena that was simply tied to what was happening in the US. And I think that's a really important point. Certainly, the US, in a sense, became a point of of galvanising the issue, but those insurrections were already occurring. Indeed, as they were, you know, as we know in Australia, around black deaths in custody and that movement. And if I just add to that, I mean, one of the other things that I've looked at in the book is really trying to trace the history over the last 50 years of this movement, if you like. And I trace it back to groups like the Black Panthers or the Black Power Movement in Australia, which the point of those groups initially was to confront police violence against Black and First Nations people. And so, yeah, there's a long history to this movement, which predates the kind of catch cry of defund the police. And we know the Black Power Movement in Australia or the Black Panthers in the US or American Indian Movement, AIM, in the US were all about confronting and stopping police violence, but just as importantly, building community resources, building education for First Nations people, confronting issues around housing, around health. And so I think, you know, it's always, for the, at least for the last 50 years, been an ongoing project, if you like, an ongoing project for liberation for First Nations, Black and other minoritised uh, groups in many countries. It is actually one of the really interesting things about the book, even for somebody like myself who thought that they knew a fair bit about this area. I was surprised at how global the conversations were. I shouldn't have been, but it's very interesting to see that history and its breadth globally put together in the book. And it does actually give the impression that the usual approach to the way that we police in societies is fundamentally flawed because you're seeing this not just in one or two places, but you're seeing it everywhere. And it's a similar concept that people are asking for. And you've also mentioned that when you've seen things like justice reinvestment, where resourcing is taken from the back end of the criminal justice system and put into things that are around prevention or dealing with underlying issues, they're very effective. So from your perspective, why is there such a visceral negative reaction to the phrase defund the police by some quarters of the community? I think one reason is that people really just see it as a, as a kind of negative phrase, if you like, or a, a negative approach to public policy without actually understanding the depth of what, what's being argued for that underpins that catchphrase. And that depth is really about challenging some of the basic institutions around policing, but around you know, the prison industrial complex more generally. And I think that's part of the negative response to it, a lack of understanding, but also it challenges institutional power. And so it's easy to to deride that 
the, that phrase defund the police without actually bothering to understand and to reimagine what society might look like without the current institutional arrangements, which are highly problematic. I mean, we just have to look at the number of people who overwhelmingly come from marginalised or minoritised communities and the effects that that has on people and families and communities to know that the current system is simply a failure in terms of what it sets out to do. I think one of the other things that's connected to that, which I look at in the book, is that we need to understand the historical background to policing as to why it's such a problematic institution. And one of the things I do in the book is look at the way in which policing has been a fundamental of colonial power. And that's as true whether we're looking at India, whether we're looking at Kenya or Nigeria or South Africa, whether we're looking at South or Central America, Latin America, or whether we're looking at Australia or Canada. Now, policing has been a core institution in controlling, often violently, uh, Indigenous peoples, black and brown and other minoritized groups. And that act underpins the uprising, I think, you know, in a broader sense uh, in 2020. It is a powerful polemic in the book, and you insightfully make that argument about the ongoing role that policing has had in colonial societies like Australia, where it was part of a colonising project from the start and, and has maintained a role in it. It made me reflect that in looking at your work over the years, your work now is very focused on, I guess, deep structural changes like justice reinvestment and defunding the police ideas. When you asked what would need to happen as we continue to struggle with the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system as a indicator that the system is still inherently racist and colonial. What is your agenda for reform? If Mark Dreyfus rang you and said, Professor Canine, what should I do to stop this trend in incarceration rates, albeit that we'll have to bring the states on board as well? What would your suggestions be for the change that we really need to have in Australia? Look, I think there's, again, multiple levels to that. Yeah, we mentioned when we first started talking the important role that disability activists have played in this area. And I think that's that's one clear area for particular changes that we get police out of policing people with disabilities. But there are other areas. I mean, if we look at the, the really, I suppose, controversial issue around violence against women, there's been very, very strong arguments put by Black and First Nations women that we need not to rely on policing in the carceral system, but to look at other ways of approaching and working with the problem of violence against women because we know that policing and prison doesn't work. I think one thing that springs to mind when you're asking that question was the current coronial inquiry in Uendamu around the police killing of Kumanjaya Walker. We only have to look at what that community is asking for to see what some of the answers are. You know, they're asking for community control in terms of intervening around issues of social order and the removal of armed police from the community. So I think that, that there's quite practical policy processes that flow from that, which haven't been addressed and are not adequately addressed. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that the current ideas about reform are failures. I mean, people have been talking about the same thing for 40 years in terms of you know, increasing diversity among 
police, improving training among police, providing technical solutions like body cams and so forth, and developments in community policing, which in official rhetoric might sound good, but it actually it's about policing the community, not community control of policing. And so I think there's certainly a shopping list that you could put up very quickly, but really they all hinge around a shift in, in the dynamics and power in terms of responding to real social issues, which the police and the criminal legal system just simply don't do. Chris, thank you so much for stopping by, speaking out and sharing your insights and giving us a little bit of an overview of your very impressive new book. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. Criminologist Professor Chris Kinnean, his latest book, Defund the Police and International Insurrection, has just been released by Bristol University Press.